My name is Judy Cooper, coordinator of public programs. In the shadow of the Civil War, a circle of radicals in a rowdy Manhattan saloon changed American society and helped set Walt Whitman on the path to poetic immortality. Justin Martin's new book, Rebel Souls, is the first book ever written about the colorful group of artists who are considered America's original bohemians. They met at Pfaff's Saloon in Manhattan, a young Walt Whitman, actor Edwin Booth, the stand-up comic Artemis Ward, author Fitzhugh Ludlow, and the brazen performer Ada Menken. And that's M-E-N-K-E-N, not M-E-N-C-K-E-N. That's R. Menken. Um, Justin Martin shows how this first bohemian culture nurtured an American tradition of rebel art that thrives to this day. Justin is the author of three previous biographies of Alan Greenspan, Ralph Nader, and Frederick Law Olmsted. His writing has appeared in a variety of publications, including Fortune, Newsweek, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Please welcome Justin Martin. Well, thanks for that introduction, Judy, and um, thanks everybody for coming out on a rainy night with also a baseball game, lots of things going on, so we've got a sort of an intimate audience tonight. Um, it's great to be back here at the Pratt Library, and, um, and it's very apropos to be here in the Poe Room, <laughs> since it um, Poe is sort of a, a, an original bohemian, even before the group of bohemians I'm going to talk about tonight. And um, my book is called Rebel Souls. And it's the story of Walt Whitman and a group of scruffy artists that hung out at Pfaff Saloon in Manhattan during the 1850s. Now, my editor, she called them Walt and the Rowdies, but they're really rightly considered America's original bohemians. And as good a place as any... Oops, went the wrong direction. As, as good a place as any to start is with this image right here. This is actually... Um, back in the mid-1850s, a Brooklyn artist named Gabriel Harrison... He was a painter, and he, he started dabbling in the newfangled art of photography. And in fact, in that era, of course, photography was brand new, and daguerreotyping was the process. It was very painstaking. And so one day, in the summer of 1854, he was walking around Brooklyn, creating images of various colorful local figures. And he couldn't have found a more colorful local Brooklyn figure than Walt Whitman. Now, Walt Whitman loved this image. And so he used it the next year, in 1855, as the frontispiece for the first edition of Leaves of Grass. Now, this first edition is not so similar. It, it, it's quite a bit distant from the volume that everybody's come to know and love and it's taught in school and so forth. This was a tall, thin, self-published volume. It contained just 12 poems. Um, they were unnamed no, no title, and they flowed inexplicably one into the next. Nevertheless, it was a very bold and revolutionary work. And Walt Whitman's the acknowledged originator of free verse, so these poems lack traditional meter and rhyme. Um, it was also a bold work in that it included an author image. It didn't include an author photo. It was impossible in 1855 to include a photograph in a book. But what Whitman did was he took that daguerreotype that he so liked, and he had it turned into an engraving and he used something called the stippling process. 
And stippling is when you take a series, create a series of little dots, and those dots um, suggest contours, lines, shading. It's actually possible to create a pretty photorealistic image with the, st- the stippling process. And to this day, newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, they create photo images of people with stippling. The other thing that's really notable about this image is it captures Walt Whitman with his hat tilted at a rakish angle. He's striking a kind of defiant pose. He wouldn't have used the term bohemian, but this really captures Walt Whitman as a bohemian. And now what I'll do is explain how, he, how the term bohemian came about and how Whitman came to fall in with a group of bohemians. And for that, we turn to Henry Clapp, Jr., now, Henry Clapp Jr. was a pretty well-known lecturer around New England on topics such as abolitionism and temperance during the 1840s. And he often shared the stage with some real luminaries, such as Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist firebrand. Well, in 1849, he went to Paris for a three-day world peace conference. And at that point, he fell just in t- Bohemia was just in full flower on the left bank, and he just became enthralled. He was, he was a teetotaler to this point. He fell off the wagon and into Parisian Bohemia, started hanging out in cafes, and he was just enthralled. Now, probably necessary at this point to give a little bit of background on where the term Bohemian came from. And Bohemian actually, at this point, in the late 1840s in Paris, um, there was a real influx of foreigners into Paris And it was a real time of tumult in Parisian society. And so certain upper, particularly upper crust um, Parisians um, of a conservative political bent, they started calling some of these foreigners who were pouring into Paris, they started referring to them as Bohemians. And this was based on this sort of mistaken notion that maybe they hailed from the distant, mystical, central European kingdom of Bohemia. In fact, we know that these were actually the Romani people, that's what, the, what this group of people that were coming into Paris at that time were called. And they actually hailed, we now know from the Indian subcontinent about a thousand years ago, and they were making their way across Europe. But, as I said, certain um, Parisians of a certain political persuasion um, tended to throw this kind of slur, Bohemian, around. They aimed it at foreigners. They also aimed it at scruffy students. They also aimed it at artists. Um, and the artists, they took the term bohemian and they appropriated it. They, they made it their own. And it was just a perfect contrast. You had your bourgeois element of society, cautious, smug, prosperous, and you had their opposite, bohemians. Now, a similar confusion about the origins of the Romani people gave rise to a term that everyone's familiar with in England, which is gypsy. Um, the Romani people were also at the same time wandering into England, and they were mistakenly called gypsies on the notion that maybe they hailed from Egypt. <laughs> um, now, this Bohemia that Henry Clapp, the Lapp's temperance lecture, um, fell so in love with, I'll tell you some of its elements. Um, it, was, it was rooted in a, a passion for art. One of the hallmarks of this original Parisian Bohemia was more talk of art than actual creation of art. People would sit around in cafes, talk about their great masterpiece, never get around to creating it. Um, sexual openness was certainly a hallmark of this, of this first um, French Bohemia. Uh, substance abuse was certainly something a lot of the members of, of um, the French Bohemia were um, saddled with. Um, also, many French Bohemians, um, they often died young. The cliche is that they died of tuberculosis, um, brought on by drafty, damp conditions in the attic rooms where they lived. 
Well, Henry Clapp, he threw himself entirely into this Parisian bohemia. He started hanging out in bars and, and cafes. He started drinking whiskey, chasing women. He adopted or affected a little clay pipe, which was kind of an accoutrement of the French bohemia of that era, so you can see him before, and then with his little clay pipe that he took up. He'd originally intended to spend three days in Paris for the Paris Peace Conference that he was attending. He wound up staying for three years. <laughs> and when he returned to America, he decided that he would return not to New England, where he'd made his name as a lecturer earlier, but to New York City, and he was intent on recreating the French Bohemia that he'd been so enthralled by. So one day, in the mid-1850s, he was walking along Broadway in New York City when he encountered a saloon called Pfaff's. And it was at 647 Broadway, which is right at the intersection of Broadway and Bleecker Street. I actually marked the building um, with a little arrow there so you can see where the original Pfaff's saloon was. However, Pfaff's saloon was a basement saloon. So the building you saw there, it was actually subterranean. It was below ground level. And the way you found it was dimly marked on the, or dimly lettered on the wall of that building. It said Pfaff's. And then there was a hatchway in the Broadway sidewalk. And you open it up. It's almost like opening up a, a door to a root cellar. And then you descended down a, a narrow metal ladder to the floor below. And then you found yourself in an ample space. Um, it was um, but modestly appointed. There was sawdust on the floor. Just a few flickering gas lamps provide the sole illumination. Now, clap upon arriving in the saloon, he immediately was struck. This was the place for him. Um, first of all, it, it, it occurred to him that it had the right kind of sort of libertine European ambience that he'd been exposed to. Now, he arranged with Charles Ignatius Pfaff, the proprietor, to be set up in a separate little vaulted room. And you can see it pictured here, separate from the main saloon. And then Pfaff, the proprietor, furnished Clapp with a long table capable of seating 30 people. And this would be the space where he convened his bohemians. And you can see in this kind of caricature, I have a little inset of, of Pfaff with his, with his pipe. And then you can see this caricature also, Pfaff sitting, or rather Clapp, I'm sorry, is sitting there at the head of the table. And he's got his trademark pipe. So this, he'd found his venue. This was going to be the place where he would convene a collection of bohemians. Now, of course, there have always been bohemians for the entire history of the world. Um, everywhere, always. Edgar Allan Poe was a bohemian indeed, if not in name, um, due to the style of life that he led. But in his lifetime, he, he died in 1849, about 10 years before this group convened, and he was never called a bohemian. And so Clapp's innovation was twofold. He's the person who imported the term bohemian, such a useful term, from Paris in the first place. Clapp is also the person he, he brought over this concept, this, this kind of codified lifestyle um, in the French model. And so the group of bohemians that he convened, they would self-consciously model themselves after the Parisian style of bohemia that Clapp had been exposed to um, in Paris. And so... I'll now introduce a few members of the cast of characters of my book um, um, before ultimately working my way to, to Walt Whitman. And one of the people who gathered in this little um, vaulted room in this basement saloon beneath the Broadway sidewalk with Henry Clapp sitting at the head of the table was a man named Artemis Ward. And Ward, um, in his day, his act was so revolutionary, nobody even was sure what to call it. Newspapers at the time called it a comic lecture 
but he's rightly considered America's first stand-up comedian. And Abraham Lincoln was a huge fan. In fact, um, Lincoln, before introducing the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet, he read them some selections from an Artemis Ward comedy routine. And he said to his, ca- his, his puzzled and then amused cabinet, he said, gentlemen, at a time like this, if you didn't laugh, you should cry. You need this medicine as much as I do. Now, Ward was a classic sad clown. In fact, when I, when I heard about Robin Williams killing himself recently, it, it put me in mind of Artemis Ward. He was a model, he was a style of, an enduring style of comedian. He, was, he gave the world laughter and levity, but in his own heart and soul, he was filled with sadness and darkness and emptiness. And as I was researching him and the other Bohemians, one of the things I was struck by was just how incredibly passionate they were about their art and their craft. These people were just alive and burning with passion. And, of course, Ward and many of the others who I'll discuss here today subsequently fell into obscurity. But during their lifetimes, they were burning for art, basically, and burning for, their, you know, for, for the acts that they, that they did or created. And when I did my research, I'd, I'd often come across old letters, old newspaper accounts from the 1850s. They'd be kind of yellowed and musty. But what really shined through is how very alive these people were and I really started to feel an obligation as I did my research to try to revive them and bring them back for, for a new generation. Now, another person who gathered, who sat along that long table underneath the Broadway sidewalk in that saloon was a woman named Ada Isaacs Minkin. And that fact alone, that she was a woman, is notable. This was a time of real gender segregation in American society, and particularly in places like saloons. In fact, People here, some people here might have been to McSorley's in New York City. McSorley's is, it, it dates to 1854. FAFS was open, FAFS Saloon was open in 1855, so they're from almost the same year. McSorley's original, um, its original slogan was, good food, good ale, no women. So it gives you an idea of the kind of gender segregation that existed in that era. It also tells you a lot about FAFS Saloon, that it welcomed women at such, in such a time. It tells you a lot about Henry Clapp, the man who convened this group of Bohemians, that he wanted to have women as part of his circle. In fact, sitting along that table as regulars were a number of women, including Ada Isaacs Minkin. Now, she was an actress, and she was by turns brazen and vulnerable. And as I learned more about her, I began to think of her almost like a sepia-toned Marilyn Monroe. And her, her act... Um, what she gained notoriety, she gained fame and ultimately notoriety for her role in a play called Mazeppa. Now, Mazeppa was, by the 1850s when she was starring in it, it had existed for about 30 years. It was a very tired, shopworn drama that an entire generation of Americans had seen. And the topic, of all things, was Balkan geopolitics, which sounds excruciating, <laughs> but this was a different time before television, the radio, internet, and so the opportunity to go out and see a play where you learned about the customs and mores of an exotic land was, was a draw for people. But by the 1850s, it was, as I said, a really tired production. Well, this producer had an idea of how to kind of freshen it up, and his main idea was... Typically, Mazeppa, the lead character, who is a Tartar warrior, is played by a man. He decided instead to have Ada Isaacs Minkin play that role in drag. That meant for the first part of the play, she engaged in some rousing swordplay. 
she delivered some very laborious soliloquies about Balkan geopolitics. But then in the climactic scene, Mazeppa's enemies tear off his tunic and the buxom actress was, was revealed underneath. She was wearing a sheer flesh-colored body stocking and the flickering lights of, of theaters of that era, it was impossible to tell whether she was wearing any clothes or not. So this producer was on to something. <laughs> but, but he didn't stop there. <laughs> Typically, in the climactic scene of Mazeppa, um, Mazeppa's enemies strip him bare and strap him to a horse and send him out into the, into the elements to, to, you know, be, to be exposed and to die. Well, this is usually, in the play, it's usually represented by having the actor substituted with a dummy, and the dummy is then attached or strapped to a hobby horse on wheels, and someone drags the hobby horse around in circles on the stage two or three times, and that's supposed to represent Mazeppa heading off into the elements to die. None of that for this producer. He decided to have a real-life horse on stage. Ada Isaac's making tunic is torn off, stripped down to her sheer flesh-colored body stocking. She's strapped spread-eagled on her back to the real-life horse that proceeds to climb a four-story high platform that's meant to look like a mountain. In this, in any other, in any era, um, this producer had a hit on his hands. <laughs> Ada Isaacs Minkin became a big sensation. She was one of the great sex symbols of the mid-part of the 19th century, and of course, she's since fallen into obscurity. Now, one other figure from this that gathered in this, at this long table in this little vaulted room beneath the Broadway pavement was a man named Fitzhugh Ludlow. And Ludlow is the author of one of the best-selling books of 1857 called The Hashish Eater. And The Hashish Eater detailed Ludlow's experiences um, taking the drug as an undergrad at, at Union College in Schenectady, New York. And this was a time when Americans had little familiarity with hashish. It was sometimes used in small doses as a medicinal agent for treating conditions like arthritis. But as a recreational drug, it was known only in the East, in India, and places like that. Now, Ludlow's account is a really colorful, well-written account which describes what had become sort of the classic experiences for anybody who experiments or uses marijuana or hashish, which is just kind of a refined form of marijuana. So Ludlow, in this kind of vivid Victorian prose, describes what have come to be known as kind of the classic experiences. Giggle fits, music sounding really good, becoming ravenously hungry, as in the munchies. <laughs> so, and, and um, this particular account, it actually, the hashish actually led to a brief vogue for hashish in the United States. In fact, John Hay, who would later be Lincoln's personal secretary and later still would become the Secretary of State under McKinley and then under Theodore Roosevelt, um, while as an undergraduate at Brown University, inspired by Ludlow's account, he tried the drug and he would later look back on Brown, as he said in quotes, as a place where I dreamed dreams and ate hashish. So with Ludlow in particular among the people I've introduced so far, it, it might strike people that this is almost like a counterculture. And the word counterculture didn't even exist in the 1850s, but it's an apt description. When people think of countercultures, they tend to think of the 1960s. But the 1850s share a lot in common with the 1960s. The 1850s were an incredibly chaotic and tumultuous time in American society. The country was in dissolution as it was on the eve of the Civil War. And the various artists in this circle, they, they didn't tend to be very political, but 
the politics and the tumult and the chaos of the era sept, um, slept into that little subterranean saloon and kind of informed them. It kind of, they, were, they were sensitive artists, so it kind of in, flowed through them and, and informed their art. And these were really, this was a time, these particular artists represent a transition from art as a genteel calling to art as a soul-deep endeavor uh, centered on honesty and provocation and controversy. And they really, this, this was an early group that helped set in motion a style of rebel art that's enduring in the United States to, to this day. Of course, the most illustrious person to show up at the saloon was Walt Whitman. And Whitman arrived at a time when he was personally and professionally adrift. He was 39 years old. He was unemployed. He was living at home in Brooklyn with his mother and some siblings and some children of his siblings all crowded into a basement apartment. He hadn't published a poem in two years. He found being part of this circle of artists was just essential. It gave him an identity that was very much lacking, very much in question at this point. But also being part of this circle goaded him on. This group of artists, um, they certainly, they drank hard. They were involved in a lot of merrymaking, you might call it. But these were also really serious, disciplined, working artists, by day at least. And being part of this circle um, really pushed Whitman. Um, Along that long table, People were in the habit of sharing their works in progress. So it was almost like a salon or a, a workshop. They would share novels in progress, essays. In my research, I came across examples of people bringing in statues or rather sculptures and paintings for critique. Artemis Ward, America's first stand-up comic, he actually refined his comedy routine with the frank feedback of his fellow bohemians before taking it out on the road. In Whitman's case, being part of this circle pushed him intensely. He, he spent... For four years, from 1858 to 1862, he was at Fafsaloon almost every night. That left him ample time during the day for one of the most creative periods of his life. He wrote over 100 new poems, and those poems, in turn, formed the core of the landmark 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass. You might call this the Fafs edition. This was where the earlier editions had been thin volumes. This was a big, fat, sprawling body, complex, maddening work that bears a close resemblance to the work that people might have been assigned in school, people know and love today, the one that's big and can be used as a doorstop. Now, once again, he visited a lot of bold themes in this new edition of Leaves of Grass. He, he had a lot of poems in there about the dissolution of the union. He also had a lot of poems about romantic love between men. Once again, um, Despite these bold themes, despite this um, you know, wild freeform experimentalism, um, the book was poorly received. It, sold very, it started to sell very few copies. It, start, it got off to a poor start, got mostly negative reviews, and it was really set to sink like a stone. At this point, Henry Clapp, the man who convened this group of Bohemians, the person who sat at the head of that table, sometimes called the king of, the, of Bohemia, he came to Whitman's aid. As it happens, Clapp was the editor of a publication called the Saturday Press that during its brief existence was one of the most influential publications in America. And it was kind of the mouthpiece of Bohemia. It published works by the various Bohemians who sat along that table 
and um, those and it, it published works about them and also published essays and bits of gossip about them so that curious people around the country um, could learn about the doings of these various people who are part of the circle. And in my research, I learned that articles that appeared first in the Saturday press sometimes were reprinted in as many as 200 publications around the country. So something that appeared first there might appear in San Francisco, Denver, Boston, and so forth. Well, Clapp commissioned three separate reviews of this new edition of Leaves of Grass in the Saturday Press. He also reprinted reviews from other publications, which were mostly negative. So that was just kind of a, a bold stroke on Clapp's, on Clapp's case. He commissioned the fellow Bohemians who sat at the table to write appreciations of Whitman, bits of gossip about him, essays about Whitman, and parodies of his poetry. The, um, the net effect of all of this was it made it seem like Whitman was being buzzed about. And this third edition of Leaves of Grass, it started to take flight commercially. Now, it wasn't any runaway bestseller or anything, but it Clapp succeeded in rescuing Whitman from obscurity through his intercession, and this third edition um, sort of started Whitman on the slow path, first to poetic fame and ultimately to poetic immortality. Now, the Civil War, it disrupted this set at Pfaff's, and the group, they scattered. Um, many, um, they, many of them traveled around the country, and they often reconvened in often dramatic new settings. When people returned to Manhattan from this Bohemian set, they'd return to their, they'd make a visit back to their beloved Pfaff's. Whitman famously went down to Washington, and he, he tended to the wounded soldiers in the hospitals there. And this is actually a photograph of one of the many hospitals where Whitman ministered to wounded soldiers. Now, in 1865, in April of 1865, the Civil War ended. Less than a week after the end of the war, Lincoln was assassinated. And the darkness of this event, it's almost like it bled out into the FAF scene. It's, sort, it's almost as if it infected the various Bohemians. They'd had their moment of ascendancy back in the late 1850s and early 1860s, and now within the space of a few short years after the end of the Civil War, almost everybody in this set had faded into obscurity. Many of them, many of the people that I talked about earlier, in fact, would not only would they quickly fade into obscurity, many of them would meet early deaths, often under tragic circumstances. But of course, Whitman, he lived on. He was the one person from this set who lived on into old age, almost like a witness to the lost FAF scene. And late in life, he'd tell one of his first biographers, Faf's Bohemia has never been reported, and more the sorrow. Now, as Whitman grew older, he became an almost iconic figure in 19th century America. He, he came to be known, he's sometimes called the good gray poet in this, in this guise of his, of his latter years. He's, he became a really recognized figure for his long gray hair and his shaggy beard and his twinkling blue eyes. He was kind of the embodiment of what a poet should look like. But here's the thing, as, as so often happens, as Whitman grew older, his powers as an artist abandoned him. And so he looked the part, and he continued to write poetry, but really the greatest, the finest poems that Whitman wrote was a much younger man, often at Pfaff's, often as a bohemian. And so I'm going to close today by reading just a brief um, sna uh, snippet or snatch from one of my favorite poems, which is Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, one of 
witness finest poems. And I brought a little prop, which hopefully, <laughs> hopefully will create something of an illusion. This is a, a wide awake, and um, hopefully it's, it's not like the, um, the, the little hobby horse that got dragged in circles. It's hopefully a more, a more useful device. Um, now, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, it's, it's, a, it's one of the many Whitman poems that employs something I call the universal eye. Um, and what that is, is it's a first person that sometimes it can be taken to be Walt Whitman himself. Sometimes it's kind of a vague cosmic presence. And one of the interesting ways he uses this device is sometimes he addresses future readers. This is a remarkably bold thing to do. But on his best days, Whitman was full of confidence. And on his best days, he recognized that he was a towering talent. It's not for nothing that he's the group, the member of this group who we really remember and has become a, you know, a, a great American figure. And so on, on, in some of his finest poetry, he reaches out and actually speaks to people hundreds of years in the future. And as I said, it's a bold stroke, but guess what? It worked because we're still reading these poems that are addressed to us in the first person. Now, this particular poem I'm going to read from Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, it details, it, it, its action is Whitman is on a, on a ferry crossing from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and in it he describes how the emotions and the feelings that he's feeling are feelings that you also, as a future person, um, will also um, experience. And so, as I said, this is just a brief um, stretch of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Flood tide below me, I watch you face to face. Clouds of the west, sun there half an hour high, I see you also face to face. Crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes, how curious you are to me. On the ferry boats, the hundreds and hundreds that cross, returning home, are more curious to me than you suppose. And you that cross from shore to shore years hence are more to me and more of my meditations than you might suppose. Others will enter the gates of the ferry and cross from shore to shore. Others will watch the run of the flood tide. Others will see the shipping of Manhattan north and west and the heights of Brooklyn to the south and east. Others will see the islands large and small. Fifty years hence, others will see them as they cross, the sun half an hour high. A hundred years hence, or ever so many hundred years hence, others will see them, will enjoy the sunset, the pouring into the flood tide, the falling back to the sea of the ebb tide. It avails not, neither time or place. Distance avails not. I am with you, you men and women of a generation, or ever so many generations hence. I project myself, also I return. I am with you, and I know how it is. Just as you feel when you look on the river and sky, so I felt. Just as any of you is one of a living crowd, I was one of a crowd. Just as you were refreshed by the gladness of the river and the bright flow, I was refreshed. Just as you stand and lean on the rail, yet hurry with the swift current, I stood, yet was hurried. These and all else were to me the same as they are to you. I project myself a moment to tell you, also I return. It is not you alone who knows what it is to be evil. I am he who knew what it was to be evil. I too knitted the old knot of contriety, blabbed, blushed, resented, lied, stole, grudged, had guile, anger, lust, hot wishes I dared not speak, was wayward, vain, greedy, shallow, sly, cowardly, malignant the wolf, the snake, the hog, not wanting in me, the cheating look, the frivolous word, the adulterous wish, not wanting, refusals, hates, postponements, meanness, laziness, none of these wanting. 
But I was Manhattanese, friendly and proud. I was called by my nighest name by the clear, loud voices of the young man as they saw me approaching or passing, felt their arms on my neck as I stood, or the negligent leaning of their flesh against me as I sat, saw many I loved in the street or ferry boat or public assembly. The men and women I saw were all near to me, others the same, others who looked back on me because I looked forward to them. The time will come, though I stop here today and tonight. What is it then between us? What is the count of the scores or hundreds of years between us? Whatever it is, it avails not. Distance avails not, and place avails not. I too lived. Brooklyn of Ample Hills was mine. I too walked the streets of Manhattan Island and bathed in the waters around it. I too felt the curious abrupt questioning stir within me. In the day, among crowds of people, sometimes they came upon me. In my walks home late at night, or as, lay, or as I lay in my bed, they came upon me. Closer yet, I approach you. What thought you have of me, I had as much of you. I laid in my stores in advance. I considered long and serious of, of you before you were born. Who's to know what should come home to me? Who knows but I am enjoying this? Who knows but I am as good as looking at you now, for all you cannot see me? It is not you alone, nor I alone. Not a few races, nor a few generations, nor a few centuries. It is that each came or comes, or shall come, from its due emission. From the general center of all, and forming a part of all, everything indicates, the smallest does, and the largest does. A necessary film envelops all, and envelops a soul for a proper time. Thank you. And if there are any questions, I'm glad to entertain them. <laughs> yes? What happened actually was I was I was chatting with a professor and he said, "Have you ever heard of Fast Saloon?" I said, "No." And he said, "You should look into that." And people are constantly giving me book ideas. I'm constantly coming up with book ideas, and you know I got a long list. And if I lost it tomorrow, it wouldn't be it would, I wouldn't lose I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. So I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. But you know I thought you know I sort of did my due diligence and started lo- and and you know thought I'd give it a quick look. As soon as I started delving into, it, I was like. Boy, this this is amazing. I, I became I became quickly hooked. <laughs> before I knew it, I was writing a book proposal, and before I knew it, I was writing a book. So, yeah. Did how many you talked with the first edition? Gosh, it has such a modern-looking title page. I can't get over how modern. Isn't that fat? It's it's funny. That's. I don't know what the antecedent would have been. Maybe there were, I don't know enough about it, maybe there were other books where there were illustrations, not necessarily author photos that went nicely along, you know, facing the, but I agree, it's, it's, it's sort of the classic format, the title and image and... Well, and there were, it depends on the count, I counted nine, um, um, scholars count anywhere from six to twelve, um, and those were those would be the eighteen fifty five that that first one, the eighteen fifty six, the eighteen sixty, what I called the fast edition, the eighteen sixty seven, and then it starts to get blurry. But there are a series of other ones from about eighteen sixty seven until what's sometimes called the deathbed edition, eighteen ninety two, and depending on what you count as a separate edition, because they're you know sort of different deviant printings of 
you know, sometimes people say, oh, that's two editions. Sometimes people say, oh, it's just a slight alteration to um, that same edition. And I, I kind of think of it almost like um, the Constitution or something in Whitman's case. It was, his, it was a living document that he, with great brilliance, thought, he, he, he once called it the unkillable work. He just, he spent his whole life just building it, enlarging it, editing it, rearranging it, retitling the poems, trying new punctuation. At one point late in his life, he decided to drop to do like blush, spelled B-L-U-S-H, apostrophe D. And so he changed all the E-Ds to apostrophe Ds. I mean, he was constantly tinkering with it. And um, that's what makes it what it is. In fact, one of the wonderful things is is, um, occasionally he tried to do something outside the Leaves of, Fran- of Grass franchise, as it were. For instance, he published a wonderful collection of Civil War poetry called Drum Taps. He self-published it. It included O Captain, My Captain, his best-known poem, and When, when um, Lilacs Last in the do- uh, Dooryard Bloomed, and some other poems. He later simply, Drum Taps was this little, thin, self-published volume. He later simply folded the finest of the Drum Taps poems into a edition of Leaves of Grass. So all of a sudden, Leaves of Grass include not only those early poems from the 1855 edition, but his great Civil War poetry about the Slan Lincoln. And then as he aged, he included many poems about, about the aging process. So the Deathbed edition, as it's sometimes called, um, is you know it's, it's a, the whole big ball of wax. It has a lot of um, different periods of his life all rolled into this one big book. Yes? I was alluding or not, but... Uh... Early at the Rubicon Club in the Cleveland, which distilled is not the book of it, does not admit women, interesting enough to this day. But I think, if I remember correctly, that either the first or second or third edition changed by stippling, I guess, the uh, the illustration of uh, of Whitman, and especially, and, I, and I, if I'm I remember this correctly, especially around the crotch of his trousers. What? Oh, what that is? What that is is Ted Genoways, who's an excellent Whitman scholar. Um, he did a study where he looked at the first edition, the 1855, which which um, I was showing. Um, and he noticed, you know, the 1855 was such a kind of do-it-yourself work. I mean, he was self-published. He worked with a Brooklyn printer of legal forms who'd never done a book, and they ran off a total of 795 copies. But literally, Whitman would notice a typo in copy, you know, 450 that he would correct starting with 451. Well, Ted Genoways makes a convincing case that it plays into that being a bohemian image of Whitman. The, along the way, Whitman decided to, to kind of accentuate his crotch area a little bit more. And, you know, you couldn't, it's one of those things, if, if you're curious, you can find, it's an interesting essay Genoways wrote, and you couldn't say it's not just a quirk of, you know, 795 rather amateurish printings that, that, the crotch area looked a little different on some of them, but he makes a convincing case that Whitman decided somewhere along the line, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to endow myself a little, a little more. <laughs> so. Yes? Thank you for bringing to us these five people who were... My pleasure. ...in comparison to your average... 19th century person. My, my pleasure. I'm wondering, did any of these people have contact with each other 
so that they could do things with each other? Or was it an individual uh, episode that each one did? It just now it makes it worthy of them to be thought about in the 21st Sure. Well, uh, you know, they, they, all, they all were at that long table together at Faf Saloon, and they had a lot of collaboration together to give some examples. Fitzhugh Ludlow um, wrote the book The Hashish Eater. The result of that was Whitman started to pepper his poems with images from hashish and even some references to hashish. Now, Whitman was a very moderate guy, a very moderate drinker. I doubt he, I doubt he um, ate any hashish. I doubt he ingested. Um, but... Um, you know, there was a vogue for hashish at the time, and, and Whitman was always real sensitive to societal trends. So, so you know, he was kind of being influenced by Ludlow there. Ada Isaacs Minkin, who, um, the woman in the middle there, who I described as being a um, you know sort of vulnerable and sensitive while also cunning, she she was besides being an actress, she was also a a very poor poet, but she was incredibly influenced by Whitman. She wrote some essays defending Whitman, and then she tried her own hand at some really weak free verse. Um, but it was influenced by Whitman. And, in fact, Charles Dickens would say about Ada Isaacs Mankin, he once described her as a sensitive poet who could not write. So <laughs> so, so there was some... Um, Artemis Ward, in turn, Ada Isaacs Mankin, she was a very, very smart woman. She was just, you know, she was saddled, you know, she wasn't a talented poet, and she was stuck. She was typecast into this crazy role where she was strapped to a horse. She was desperate to have someone write her a work worthy of her ambitions to be a more serious actress. She had an affair with Artemis Ward, America's first stand-up comic. They had an affair together, and, and he promised to write her. Um, a, a work that would, you know, sort of make her a more formidable actress and, and, you know, have her be recognized. But he never, he never delivered on that. So that gives you an idea of some of the... So the, these people all, they all knew each other. They all sat at that table together. They all, you know, in one way or another, goaded each other on. Um, there were no true collaborations from the standpoint of two people sitting down co-authoring something, but there was a lot of cross-pollinization, a lot of ideas flowing through them. And particularly flowing through all of them was Henry Clapp at the head of the table, the king of Bohemians, the idea of what the Bohemian lifestyle was, what it meant to be a rebel, to be flouting society, for Whitman as a gay man, for the other figures for various transgressive reasons. Um, they were really, they, they all were um, joined in, in you know, espousing this Bohemianism. How did they survive financially? They were, it was, it kind of, um, doing my research, I was both envious and mortified by the way they lived. They, they, they decided to live as, as, you know, real hand-to-mouth artists. Um, they lived on tiny amounts of money sometimes. They lived, you know, it was, it was um, impressive to see how true some of them were to their vision, even when it meant making tiny amounts of money. Um, and, yeah, they, they basically, I mean... Um, you know, they, they, they subsisted off on very small amounts of money, um, you know, whatever they could scrounge together from, from their work. And I also think, I think, you know, I made reference earlier to, you know, the original French Bohemia that so many of the people died often from tuberculosis. So many of these people died too, often from conditions brought on by substance abuse. I think that the researching the book made, made me aware, made me think anew about how Everything has a cost, and in, the, in their case, being 
very committed artists um, and not giving it up for a more lucrative job had a cost. It, it, it took a toll on their psyches. I, I think it probably drove the substance abuse and privation for many of them and probably, you know, their commitment to their art also and, you know, hasten their deaths is the best way to describe it for many of them. Yes. I was just going to say, this is nothing to do with that. In the 40s and 50s, growing up in Baltimore, you're too young to remember, but virtually every neighborhood saloon had a ladies' entrance. In other words, women you would never go into the front door. Usually they were on the corner, so that or, or on an alley or an areaway, and the women's entrance was always down so that the women, if there was a restaurant involved or food served, the women could go into the ladies' entrance and sit in the back, but you would never see a woman at the bar, in, especially in these neighborhoods, in, in blue collar primarily or ethnic neighborhoods. Or I can imagine, I, I, when I did my research, I, I heard tell of that, of these separate ladies' entrances, and, and certainly FAFS was, was, you know, I had to keep putting myself kind of back in the past and remembering there was a time when when it was a shocking thing for a woman to be able to, to, a, to go to a saloon and sit at the table with, with um, you know, as part of a group. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's quite a commitment. <laughs> um, your attitude toward leaves of grass. I don't know if you had an attitude toward it when you started the book or even about Whitman or if it changed or grew or what you thought when you started the project and what you thought about leaves of grass um, afterward. And also I'm curious, you've written books on such different subjects. Greenspan, Olmstead. <laughs> now this, do you have a favorite or is it always the one you're working on? It's always the one I'm working on, although this one I feel, I feel that may especially fervently, so I, I, I really, I mean, this really is my favorite book, um, besides being my most recent one. Um, I'll sort of take the questions in reverse order. As for how, why I've written on such different subjects, what they all have in common is I, I, I like things that have a lot of variety, um, and so even though those, those were individual subjects, Olmsted, who I, I spoke here on a couple of years ago, is just a a towering Renaissance man. I mean, a journalist, a um, a Civil War med- head of a Civil War medical unit, America's greatest landscape architect, an abolitionist. So he was just you know, there's so much variety in this one person. Greenspan wouldn't seem that much variety, but he was actually a professional jazz musician, and then a part of Ayn Rand's inner circle helped her with the research for Atlas Shrugged. Believe it or not, so I thought he was a kind of a, and particularly when when I wrote the book about him, he was you know he was then the Fed chairman, and I thought this was, these were interesting early chapters of his life. And then of course, this group, you know, they're all all over the place, all different kinds of, of people. So I like variety, and then per the. Per my feelings about Leaves of Grass, you know, I, I had it assigned to me when I was younger, and you know, it didn't really move me. It was just homework. And I actually I came to the book with the idea of approaching Whitman as a person, a figure, not necessarily you know, not doing a, a scholarly treatment of his poetry. And I actually thought, I went into it with an anxiety that I'd find his poetry dense and complicated and um, difficult. And what happened instead was I just fell head over and heels in love with his poetry. I mean, I just, I really, I found it in, in, just astoundingly 
easy. <laughs> so that's how I would describe it. It's just, it's just. I think that's what accounts for its enduring quality. It's, it's, it's poetry that, that I think anybody can enjoy. I think, I think people are often scared off by poetry, you know, for the re- the same reasons I just gave. But his poetry, in particular, I think is poetry that that anybody can enjoy. And I, I certainly, you know, found myself just just thrilled by it. What are your potential Oh, I've got a long list of, of half-baked ideas. Nothing, nothing good. Nothing even worth. <laughs> all, all bad. <laughs> so I'll, I'll come up with something. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed it very much. <laughs>